Did you know that when you're in perimenopause and menopause, it is absolutely crucial that you regulate and balance your blood sugar levels? Today, we're going to talk why it's important and ways that we can do it. Stay tuned. Dr. Masley, I'm so happy to have you on our show today, a physician, a nutritionist, and I know other things. Can you just do a quick introduction so that our viewers can get a sense of how amazing you are? Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm a physician, nutritionist, trained chef, and creator of programs for public television, uh, best-selling author, and really my passion is empowering people to optimize their health, their brain function, prevent heart disease, and feel amazing. Thank you. And I'm so happy that you're joining us. So I heard you on our Naturally Savvy podcast. Unfortunately, I wasn't there for that interview, but my amazing co-host, Lisa Davis, did the interview. And I thought, my gosh, I need to have you on our Morphous show because you're a wealth of information and your focus, at least what you spoke about on Naturally Savvy, was blood sugar regulation. And when we get into perimenopause and menopause, why is it so important that we make sure that we balance our blood sugar levels? Well, when you think about all hormone control, they're interlinked. They're not separate silos. They work, they have a web-like connection. So when your blood sugar regulation is out of control, your hormone metabolism is out of control. You're more inflamed. You gain weight. You're, You're decreasing brain speed and brain performance. You're turning your brain cells off and killing them. And you're growing plaque in your arteries if your blood sugar is not controlled. So Blood sugar control is really the number one cause of death, dementia, weight gain, diabetes, and it impacts menopause in a major way as well. Yeah. So what the term that, you know, I'm more familiar with these days is type three diabetes. And that's how they're referring to, I guess, um, blood sugar regulation, but how it affects our brain. Is that what, explain a little bit about how it got that name type three diabetes. Well, to have cognitive function, your brain cells need energy. And if you're insulin resistant, um, if, you're, if you're eating too much sugar, too many refined carbs, even if your blood sugar is just slightly out of balance, insulin's essential to use brain cell energy f- for fuel. So if you turn, it's like have a drive from driving your car with an empty gas tank. Mm-hmm. The car won't run. And if you keep running it, you're going to eventually damage the engine, which is what happens to our brain. So abnormal blood sugar control turns off our brain cells. And not only do you have more sluggish, are you like, you know, brain fog, but your, your brain is literally shrinking, leading towards dementia. So we've started calling type three, di- type three dementia is type three diabetes, because it's pro- the number one cause for memory loss in dementia today is elevated blood sugar levels. So, you know, we had type one, which was you lost um, cells that make insulin in your pancreas. Type two is people to generally gain weight and have elevated blood sugar levels. But now we think of it as if you're having brain fog, that could be another sign of abnormal blood sugar control leading to memory loss. Let's go to insulin resistance for a second, because that's the step before you get to a type two diabetes. Can you explain what that is and how it differs from type two? So insulin as I just alluded to, is the hormone that helps your brain cells uptake energy, but it it lowers blood sugar. It gives you blood sugar control. And when your insulin goes up, your appetite goes up. 
So if you're eating too much sugar, you're making more insulin. And over time, your cells become insensitive to that insulin message of telling the cells to absorb more sugar and take it out of the bloodstream. And eventually they just stop listening. They, they become resistant to insulin's message. And that creates all sorts of dysfunction. We're more inflamed. Our blood sugar levels just don't begin to go up, but we're really, we're growing plaque in our arteries. Our brain cells are dying. Um, so a decade before someone might say you have diabetes, you're at increased risk for memory loss, for a heart attack, for a stroke, um, weight gain, all sorts of things that people don't want. And as I said, it adverse for women, it adversely affects hormone control. So for guys, they may have more testosterone resistance. For women, they're going to have more estrogen and progesterone dysfunction and, and worse menopause symptoms as well. So could you have technically type two and type three diabetes? So can, is it something like that you have one or the other? Or is it something you no, can No, no, you can. Both? You don't have type one and type two. Type one is you don't make insulin anymore and you need insulin shots. Type two and type three are kind of the same thing. Type two is what when you, when you have elevated blood sugar levels and you're still making insulin. If anything, you're making too much insulin. The insulin just isn't sensitive anymore. Type three is when either pre-diabetes, just insulin resistance is there or diabetes is there and you're losing memory function. You're actually developing dementia and memory loss. So for those who are, for our viewers who are watching right now, they might be thinking, this sounds very interesting and something that I absolutely want to jump on and make sure that I'm doing. How would we know? And I know you've said a couple of things that, you know, some ways that we may be able to tell if our insulin, if our blood sugar isn't balanced, but how would we know on a day-to-day -day basis if our blood sugar isn't balanced and it's creating all those issues in our body? Well, one of the first signs is your waistline starts to go up. So your weight may not change, but your, you know, your skirt size, your pant size is getting tighter. You're having to change your belt side. That's a, that's a, a, a clear first sign your blood pressure goes up. So you're, it's not just that your blood sugar goes up, it makes your cholesterol profile worse, your blood pressure goes up, you're more inflamed, you're more achy, you have brain fog. Waistline expanding is probably the first symptom you might notice. Um, hopefully, if you go see your doctor every year, they're looking at your fasting blood sugar. That's one of, that's probably more important by far than measuring cholesterol. Um, so, you know, it's the number one cause for heart disease isn't high cholesterol, it's elevated blood sugar, abnormal blood sugar control. So um, that's really a very basic thing we should all be doing every year. And a hundred is elevated. So really we want it less than 90 or 95 and you don't have diabetes till 126, but a lot of people will die from elevated blood sugars before their blood sugar will ever reach 126 in a di diagnosis of diabetes. So that's way wow. too late to wait for that. I'm going to repeat that because, I mean, to me, that's fascinating. So the, the the reason or what's causing heart disease is really our blood sugar. And I, I know this has been what's been, you know, this has been the thing that's been uh, spoken about over the last several years is that now experts all agree or the experts are looking at to the causes for heart disease. And the number one thing is blood sugar dysregulation. Yes. Wow. That is fascinating. And, you know, the issue with women in menopause, too, is that naturally, I mean, again, Please explain this. And you did explain and allude to it in terms of our hormones and estrogen dipping, but it, it kind of, I feel like it kind of goes hand in hand. So it's so important at this time in our lives that we make sure we're eating a whole foods diet. 
Make sure that we're eating that low GI or low glycemic index foods. What are some other tips that we could do or foods that we can eat that can help us balance our blood sugar levels so that well, we can really keep it balanced? Eating sugar and flour are the biggest problems. It's And it's not just table sugar. You know, it's corn syrup. It's all those cane, organic cane sugar. But flour, any form, whether it's whole grain flour, whole wheat flour, or white flour, has the exact same response on our blood sugar as does table sugar. So a bowl of white flour, a bowl of whole wheat flour, or a bowl of sugar is all the same thing. And I think a lot of people are eating like whole grain cereal for breakfast. Then they're having whole wheat bread, and then they're for lunch. And then they have crackers for a snack and, you know, whole grain, whole wheat crackers. And then they're having pasta or some other refined carb for dinner. And it's just way too much. We really need to eat a lot more, you know, like Mediterranean diet foods, vegetable, fruit, beans, nuts, olive oil, a little bit of red wine, seafood, spices and herbs. The food can taste fantastic. It's not deprivation. You know, you're, you're eating delicious food, but we're trying to lower that glycemic load. As you say, glycemic index, I like glycemic load because that's how much sugar is in each serving of food. And, you know, but it's not just that. It's also activity, both getting your heart rate up and having muscle mass and doing strength training. That's equally important. It's not being stressed. You know, stress raises cortisol, raises blood sugar levels. So it's stress management. And I think the other pillar I always talk about is nutrient intake. If you're nutrient deficient, it impacts blood sugar regulation. So, you know, nutrients like long chain omega-3 fats, um, B vitamins, zinc, magnesium, they all have a big impact on blood sugar control. So it's, you know, those are the four pillars, the right food, activity, stress management, nutrient if you do those four things right, we pretty much solve all our health problems today. How does exercise control blood sugar? Well, an aerobic workout does lower your blood sugar. I mean, it revs your metabolism. It makes you more insulin sensitive. So when your insulin it does be released, it responds to your cells. So an aerobic workout, getting your heart rate up, is one of the best things to rev your metabolism, burn more calories, and make your cells sensitive to insulin instead of resistant. But strength training has an added additional benefit. You're adding muscle mass, and muscle mass is the capacitator to absorb glycogen and sugar, you know, from meals. So the more muscle mass you have, the more sugar you can actually tolerate. And when people lose muscle mass, especially women, when they go through menopause, they can't handle the sugar load they could eat in the prior to that. They just won't handle it anymore. So it's a significant change for them. So both strength training and aerobic activity are perhaps they're as important as, as food, clearly. So you just hit on something that's very interesting to me. I have like a million questions circulating in my head. I'm like, okay, I have so many questions and I, I want to get through it articulately. So in terms of, you know, we can't, you, you mentioned that when we lose muscle mass, we actually can't handle the sugars as well. You talked about hormones. What are some other reasons that as we get into perimenopause and menopause that we can't handle the sugar the way we were able to before then? Well, metabolism drops and teleologically think about it as you know, when women are no longer raising children in a tribe, if we were tribal beings living 100,000 years ago when our DNA and genes were kind of set for us and we haven't changed much since, um, as women stopped rearing children, they might walk more that day. They, you know, they were out gathering. They weren't at home around, you know, the compound 
the hut, the cave, whatever it was, watching kids, they would walk farther to gather herbs, to gather food, to dig up roots, to catch a bird, collect eggs. They, they were probably more active. They, they didn't have the restrictions on staying at home. And so they needed to lower their metabolic rate, calorie burn rate to survive. Hmm. So I think we've always valued people as they age, the elders in our society, teleologically, we want to keep them around. Well, you have to drop their metabolic rate if their function changes in their society. So to me, it makes sense that you have a drop in calorie burn metabolic rate. Uh, women's testosterone, just like men, women's testosterone levels drop and they lose muscle mass. So unless they do more strength training, actually more than they did before, they'll lose muscle mass. Um, that's another important, you know, so that's another physiologic change we're dealing with. And when estrogen and progesterone levels drop naturally, they drop, you know, the estrogen drops about 50% progesterone even more. That has additional hormonal changes that make us more likely to become insulin resistant and make our blood sugar levels go up. So it's multiple factors. So when a woman goes through menopause, same for guys when they go through andropause, but especially for women, they need to eat better, be more active and um, do more strength training. That's it's a necessity to maintain the same level of health. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Cindy Bigelow of Bigelow Tea, and I'm here to introduce you to our newest line called Bigelow Benefits. I love them all. We have stress-free, and I say who doesn't want to be stress-free, stay well, perfect for this time of year, calm stomach, sleep, another important one, and our newest, throat defense. So try any one of them. You can buy them on Amazon or BigelowTea.com. I guarantee you, you will love them all. I want, I'd like to move on to food for a minute and diet. So you talked about the Mediterranean diet. What are your thoughts on paleo and keto? So if we're talking about keeping those flours out and those sugars are out, I would think that you would find that those two ways of eating would be beneficial for women in menopause. Well, when we look at blood sugar control, the number one long-term rated diet is by far Mediterranean diet. It wasn't even close for paleo and keto to come in there. When you're looking at short-term diet, like what can you do for a month? A lot of people can make changes for a month, but to get someone to stay on keto, I have you know close associates, friends who promote a keto diet, but they admit it's hard. It's really difficult to do that long term. And when they travel or they visit guests, you know, it gets oftentimes unintentionally thrown out the window. So keto diet is, and it's really hard to do properly. You're supposed to eat at least nine cups of green leafy vegetables every day to safely be on a keto diet and prevent some of the problems from acidosis. It certainly doesn't just mean eating, you know, um, canned meats and bacon in abundance. And, you know, you really, you want those fruit and vegetables are the healthiest things we eat to, to block aging and oxidation and inflammation Fruits and vegetables are essential, and it's it's challenging to do that with pay. So I really like a low glycemic Mediterranean diet. We're cutting out the pasta and the really small portions of pasta, cutting out most of the rice, certainly cutting out the bread, but eating vegetable, fruit, beans, nuts, seafood, some poultry, um, yogurt, uh, spices and herbs, olive oil. The, to me, that's the ideal diet. So. You can try to do keto, it, it, it's very challenging to do properly. Paleo is a little bit easier, but it's still, when you look at six months adherence rates, 
they really drop off significantly. Mm -hmm. And I think the Mediterranean diet is built in with a higher nutrient density. So if you're trying to meet your nutrient needs, the easiest thing is the Mediterranean diet. And that's the most important. If you look at six month adherence, the Mediterranean is the easiest diet, healthy diet on the planet to follow. Yeah. So, no, that's so good for delicious you. and easy yeah. to do, and you'll be more successful. So what are your thoughts on legumes? You said legumes are okay to eat from a brain perspective or blood sugar regulation. Those are fine since they do have a, I guess, a, is it a 50, 50 protein to carbohydrate ratio? Well, more importantly, when you eat beans, they may, they give you long sustained blood sugar levels without a spike. So when you eat even some, a lot of things give you a spike in blood sugar and legumes block that spike. So we don't want no blood sugar all day. You'd be, you'd feel grumpy. You'd be tired. You'd, you'd be, have bad symptoms. You want constant, steady, low levels of blood sugar. That's what beans provide. Beans are also the highest antioxidant food on the planet. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to block oxidation, which we do if we want to slow aging, um, there is no food that even comes close to comparing to the benefits of beans. So they, beans improve blood sugar, they lower inflammation, they're the highest antioxidant food on the planet. But I, I gotta admit one thing though, probably 10, possibly up to 15, 20% of people are sensitive. They don't have the digestive enzymes, they cause them discomfort. So anytime you have unexplained chronic health problems, one of the first things we should try is an elimination diet. Mm -hmm. You know, gluten, dairy, beans, soy, um, citrus, eggs, you know, those are the really common things that can really drive someone's health into the ground. So I think it's really important with anyone with a problem to try an elimination diet for three to four weeks. If they really get better, um, gradually add things back, see what they're sensitive to, and then avoid things they're sensitive to long-term. So probably 10, perhaps 15% of people should be avoiding beans, but the rest of us really benefit from eating them. Now, you mentioned soy and soy is a legume. So what are your thoughts on soy, especially for women in perimenopause and menopause? Well, there's been, you know, a lot of, in the last 10 years, there's been a huge shift. Like they used to say that eating soy was bad for your thyroid. Well, we now know that none of the studies support that. And some of the biggest thyroid gurus on the planet now are saying, actually, soy's a good thing. Um, I mean, the biggest shift is that soy decreases your risk for breast cancer substantially, especially if you eat it as a teenager for puberty, through puberty, with young women as they go through puberty and into womanhood are eating more soy. It decreases changes in their breasts that normally occur and decreases for life their risk of breast cancer. And if a woman's had breast cancer and she eats more soy, I mean, there's a really nice article in JAMA showing that it decreases your risk of death and cancer recurrence. So, <laughs> I mean, it has, it really improves your cholesterol, your blood pressure. Um, so if you tolerate them, definitely, I recommend not GMO, chemically adulterated soy, organic, but exactly. organic, non-GMO soy. It's only about 5 to 10% of soy products, but it's pretty easy to find in any grocery store. So non-GMO organic soy, I think, has many menopause benefits. It improves bone density. It helps with hot flashes. I mean, so, and decreasing breast cancer is perhaps the most important benefit um, so there's lots of reasons we should look at adding soy for women as they go through menopause, assuming they're not intolerant. 
Yeah, and that's a good point. And also fermented soy. So you don't want to look at the soy isolates. You want to look at like a tempeh or a miso or, you know, those, the soy foods that actually have been fermented. And to your point about, which is interesting about soy, I am one of those people who just don't tolerate, tolerate soy very well. And I, if I do too much soy, I actually, it will, it does impact my thyroid. And I, I have a great, it's not a great story, but there was a story where I was taking a soy shake in the morning and it had about six milligrams of soy per serving. And the, the company switched it to 12 and didn't, I guess, didn't announce it, or I just missed it on the label. And within a couple of weeks I had put on quite a bit of weight and I didn't understand why. And I'm like, why am I gaining weight out of nowhere? And it, and this was before I was in menopause. So this isn't uh, I was in probably Perry at this point. And I literally had gained like 10 pounds within a couple of weeks. So for some people, to your point is some people are, don't tolerate, don't tolerate it very well. And for me in particular, my thyroid didn't like it very much, but then again, I do have thyroid issues. So I do have hypothyroidism. So I do appreciate what you're saying is that for some people it will work really well and it is a good food, but like, like always, we need to listen to our bodies to see if you're not feeling good or if your throat is itchy or you're kind of like, oh, my throat doesn't feel so good, or you have other symptoms just avoid it or do the elimination like you're talking about, which I, which I appreciate. I want to move to potatoes for a sec. So I love sweet potatoes and I love regular potatoes. Sweet potatoes I know are good for us. And I know that they're, you know, they're, I'm, yeah, I, I want to hear that. Yeah. Check. They're okay to eat on this type of diet to, you know, in order to make sure that our blood sugar is balanced and please explain why, but what about regular potatoes? So sweet potatoes have a bit more fiber and that orange color really is a pigment that's good for us. So um, there's more to beta carotene, there's more carotenes, carotenoids, you know, healthy compounds in sweet potatoes compared to regular white potatoes. Now, potatoes have one of the, like mashed potatoes, they're highly processed. Um, They have what they're, you know, baked or boiled and then you puree them, well, they have a higher glycemic load, sugar load than table sugar. So see that, what kind of potato? If you boil your potato, it has about 20% less glycemic load than if you fry it or if you bake it in the oven. So boiling is the way to go. The little potatoes have about 30% less blood sugar release because if you keep the skin and they're little, they've got a much higher skin to interior ratio and you have more fiber and more, most of the nutrients and fibers in the skin. So little potatoes that are boiled have you know less blood sugar and more nutrient. And then if you refrigerate them, if you boil them, refrigerate them and then heat them back up, the refrigeration process changes the blood sugar structure, the sugar structure in the potato and has a lower 20 to 25% lower glycemic load again. So, so if you use little potatoes, you boil them, you refrigerate them and you eat them later, hot or cold, you actually can lower the glycemic load, you know, by 30 to 40% total. Potatoes still have one of the highest glycemic loads of all of them. So I, I would say small portions, infrequent. It's not like broccoli, which or some other green vegetable we could eat every day. So, yeah, um, so potatoes are in in small, infrequent serving sizes. So there you go. Would it be the same thing for like say corn? Just because these are starchy vegetables, would it be similar for corn that? Corn is. Corn is a, you know, the reason we give corn to animals to fatten them up because it fattens them up and it has a very high glycemic load and it doesn't have a tremendous nutrient full. So you're getting a lot of calories for the nutrients you get. I'd much rather that you're eating, you know, a sweet potato or squash 
or if you're looking for a starch, you know, something like that. But it doesn't come close. You know, they have dramatically more blood sugar jump than you get from broccoli, kale, even beets have a relative there. You know, the, the myth is we make sugar from beets, but beets don't have that much sugar. Neither do carrots. You have to eat nine large carrots to really raise your blood sugar um, significantly. And nobody can eat that many carrots. So, you know, a cup of carrots, a cup of beets, those are great foods that have really high nutrient value and don't raise your blood sugar very much. That's a, those are great tips. So thank you very much. And especially we can roast vegetables, mix them up, put them you know now with a little bit of like olive oil or avocado oil. I mean they're so delicious. And to eat the rainbow, right? To try different yes. things. So that those are. And I'm glad you said olive oil and avocado oil because those are my two favorite cooking oils. Yeah. You know, for high heat, more than 400, I tend to use avocado yeah. oil. Less than 400, I try to use extra virgin olive oil because they, you know, extra virgin olive oil has lots of nutrient benefit, but you can't use it at high heat. Yeah. And avocado oil is a really nice, clean, healthy oil that does take high heat. So thank you for mentioning those, my two favorite oils right off the bat. Yeah, no problem. And I love avocado oil, avocado oil too, because it can go up to like 500 degrees. So 525. 525. That's pretty amazing. So if you're doing a stir fry or anything. So yeah, glad we're on the same page. I love that. I have one more question for you, although I could talk to you all day. <laughs> I have one more question for you, at least for this interview. What are your thoughts on intermittent fasting and its effect on blood sugar levels? Well, there's another really nice idea for blood sugar control. So I've, for some time, I've been advocating partial intermittent fasting. That means at least two to three days a week. When you say partial, it's not every day uh, that you would look at fasting for a minimum of 12, preferably up to 15 hours to get some ketones going. Um, there's actually pretty good data that partial intermittent fasting two to three times a week has as much benefit as being in ketosis 24 seven all the time. So yeah, we get a lot of benefit when we fast. Now that usually means, so that would mean like say at nine o'clock at night, Nothing with calories. You can drink herbal tea, unsweetened, can have water, um, but nothing to eat with calories until, uh, if you're doing 15 hours until nine the next morning, six the next morning, if you're just, you know, uh, it, you know, it all depends on how many hours you're trying to do. But I'm usually thinking like nine to nine is 12 hours. That's the minimum. 9 p.m. to noon would be more optimal. 15 hours. Everybody's going to have a nice ketone load um, by the time they get to noon. And that's the first couple times you do it, you might feel hungry. So I always suggest people try it several days in a row. And usually by the third, fourth day, you don't have that morning hunger anymore. It's a sign your blood sugar control is improving. You're not having insulin that's too high. High insulin levels make you hungry. So as soon as you get your insulin sensitive, you get rid of some of that craving and hunger issues and partial intermittent fasting is a good way to do that. I would recommend 12 to 15 hour fast every day. If you maybe had diabetes, really high blood sugar levels, I'd probably recommend fast 12 to 15 hour fast every day. So it kind of depends on the intensity fits with how much problem you have. I think all of this would really benefit two to three days a week. 
And I love that you're saying partially because for me, I love intermittent fasting actually. And I used to do it, you know, like even up to like a month ago, every single day. And I would go even sometimes 18 hours. And what I found was that that's actually too long for me. So now I've scaled back. So I'm doing it only a few times a week and I'm doing the minimum of 12, but I'm trying to go to that 15. And I find it works for me. So in terms of mental clarity, so again, listening to our body and making sure, and I love that you're recommending that as well. So just for those who might be new to intermittent fasting, can you explain just a little bit about what it is and how best, what, what, let's set them up for success if they want to try it. So, I mean, it kind of depends what time you go to bed for, you know, again, depending on the illness situation you might have, you might want three hours of no food before bedtime. Usually an hour and a half to two hours is kind of more of a minimum time we want to stop eating before we go to bed. So figure out your bedtime and say two hours before that, we stop eating and drinking alcohol too. That's a caloric beverage. Uh, Again, herbal tea is like it after two hours before bedtime. Um, So if that's go to bed at 11, you go to sleep at 11, and that would be nine o'clock. So that would mean from at least nine to nine, minimally, you're fasting. Drink water, but there's no sugar. You can have coffee. You could have tea. You're just not putting any milk or sugar or something like in it. And um, not that hard to do. You know, and then, as you said, you try to expand it from 12 to 15 hours, you know, a couple days a week and see if you can go till noon. Um, You know, some people don't want to exercise during that. I think once you get used to it, you can work out in the morning and you don't even notice you're fine with the workout. But it's when you first start off, you may not want to throw in an exercise routine in the morning um, while you're doing if you're new to fasting. And what you're going to notice so that here's the big issues. Either we're growing fat or burning fat. When you turn off food coming in, you're always in the growing fat mode. The worst thing you can do is eat before you go to bed, wake up at two in the morning, have a snack and get up and eat first thing in the morning. And you never reach a point where you're burning fat and breaking fat down. You're always growing fat. So that break is really helpful. Our brain, our, especially our brain, stops producing beta amyloid plaque, the plaque associated with Alzheimer's, when we fast. So when you're eating during the day, you're literally growing plaque to protect your brain from inflammation. When you stop eating and you're fasting, you start breaking down beta amyloid plaque. So either you're growing it or you're potentially shrinking it. And fasting helps with that. Um, you know, think of cell, you know, cancers and things. When we stop eating and you're fasting, you're telling borderline cells to commit suicide and die off. Yeah. So fasting gets rid of borderline bad cells and helps create regenerate new healthy cells. So if you want to stay young and healthy, I th- and if you want to be keep your blood sugar and weight controlled, then I think it makes just sense to have some fasting periods added to your day so that you can get into a cleaning mode. Your body basically body cleans itself out when you're in a fasting state. And we, and we all probably need some of that. Oh yeah. I mean, we just live in whatever the world we're living in. So absolutely. So again, I'm just going to recap it because I think that information is so awesome and critical. So basically by fasting, it's literally giving our body a rest. It'll start to, you know, is it break down the amyloid plaque or it just doesn't form? Like, does it actually, it, it actually kind of helps it to break down? If we're not, it's just like plaque in your arteries, either you're growing it or you're shrinking it. Okay. 
So, so you're not it's basically- kind of A or B kind of mechanism. Um, so it's shrinking. So there are periods when we can actually start removing it or when we're producing it for both artery plaque and for brain plaque. They're, they, they have similar mechanisms. So if for people who want to know if it's working for them, would they just feel overall better? Are there so that you said there's a blood sugar test, which I'm going to ask you for the name of, so that way we can write it down and, and people can go ask, our viewers can go ask their doctors. But are there, you know, can we notice it? We're just, we're going to, we won't have memory fog. We'll feel like we'll have more energy. We Sharper, quicker, yeah. more energetic, more vibrant, um, sexier. Um, your sex drive improves, you sleep better. I mean, those are all signs of really good blood sugar control. Hmm. Insulin resistance is really bad. You, you feel awful, you're tired and uh, your system isn't working properly. It's like putting dirt in the gas tank and wondering, okay, I wonder why my car's not running well. Isn't that amazing? No one would ever go grab a handful of dirt and put it in the gas tank. But how many people might stop at the gas station and buy junk food and then wonder, I wonder why I don't feel good. Dr. Masley, thank you for the fascinating conversation today. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you feel you'd like to still share with our listeners and our viewers when it comes to blood sugar balance? Well, most people are waiting for something to go wrong to have their doctor say, oh, you have high blood sugar or there's some major problem, right? We procrastinate. We don't want it. We don't go to fix something until it's broken. But the reality is, if we don't deal with our blood sugar, we're growing plaque, our brains are shrinking, we're decreasing our quality of life. It affects us in multiple silent ways. So my biggest message is don't wait. This is your chance to feel fantastic, improve your health, still eat delicious food. It's, you know, a Mediterranean lifestyle where, you know, you're adding activity and you're managing your stress and you're eating delicious food every day, you feel fabulous. So get aboard, get started. Don't wait for something to fall apart, which is what most Americans are doing. So I'm hoping your listeners will be proactive and want to start making a difference immediately. Where could people reach you if they wanted to get in contact with you? Well, for additional information, they can always visit drmasley.com, D-R-M-A-S-L-E-Y.com. I've got recipes I post, blogs, free information, and really to help people optimize their health and feel fantastic. Thank you so much.